Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Attorney Vince Davis, and this show is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning, all. Today we're going to be taking calls, but before we take calls, we're going to be talking about um, cases where the parents aren't offered family reunification services or where their family reunification services have been terminated. In the first instance, where cases where parents are not offered family reunification services after the jurisdiction and dispositional hearing, the parent must file a writ uh, to appeal decision about not giving family reunification services and to appeal the jurisdictional and or dispositional findings. So in that particular instance, you would not file a notice of appeal. You would file a notice of intent to file a writ. They are two very different things. And if you file a notice of appeal as if you were offered family reunification services but did not like the judge's findings at the jurisdictional and dispositional hearing, you will lose your right to appeal. So remember, if you're not offered family reunification services, you must file a writ. And you can talk to the clerk of the court or you can talk to your, uh, uh, your attorney who's been representing you, be that a private attorney or a court-appointed attorney, and they will give you more information on that. Or you can just Google it. Additionally, when your reunification services are terminated, either at the six-month review hearing or the 12-month review hearing, you have to file a writ to, to appeal that. So you have to file the notice of writ to appeal that. Um, don't know this, but the attorney that represents you at the trial court level is responsible for helping you file the writ, the notice of intent to file a writ, and also the writ itself. So please keep in mind, if you're looking for an attorney or if you have an attorney, that that attorney is supposed to assist you in those cases. Once you file the notice of intent to file a writ, the Court of Appeals uh, and the trial court, the Superior Court, gather the information together that will constitute the record. Now, the record is made up of two things. Number one, all documents that were filed in the case. And number two, all transcripts of all the hearings. And once that record is um, completed, it is sent to you and your attorney. And the first thing that you should do is you should review, review that record. Sometimes things that you need are missing in the record, either because they weren't statutorily required to be in the record or there was a mistake by someone at the superior court. Generally, it's, you know, something that's 
generally a mistake is not made, but you may want something additional in the record that wasn't put in the record by the clerk of the superior court. You can make a motion to augment the record and that motion, those motions are generally um, granted uh, at the appellate court level in these types of cases. In my 30 plus years of experience as an attorney, I don't think I've ever seen the Court of Appeals deny a request to augment the record. And a matter, as a matter of fact, let me tell you how important it is. Um, many years ago, I was doing an appeal, and when I got the record, um, I realized that some of the important things to my appeal weren't listed in the, or you know, weren't in the booklet form of the record. So I made a motion to augment the record. And I did the appeal, the appellate brief, and submitted it. There were a lot of people that uh, thought that that appeal was not going to be, that I was not going to win the appeal. And as it turns out, I did win the appeal and what was called a published decision. And the court actually relied on the record that I had added or augmented. So it became very important. So once you get the record, you must review it and augment it if necessary. Once the record is final and it's been augmented and has everything that needs to be in there, you usually have 30 to 40 days um, to file your appellate brief. The Court of Appeals, the clerk's office, will inform you by letter, you and your attorney, when your appellate brief or your brief for the writ is due. And you and your attorney prepare the brief, you file it, then generally there's 30 to 40 days where the county and other attorneys have to respond to your writ, your appellate brief for this writ. And then generally you have two to three weeks, I think, uh, to file what's called a reply brief. And then the court sets the case for what's called oral argument if any of the attorneys wish to orally argue the case before the Court of Appeals. Once that argument is final and done, uh, the court makes a decision. I think the general rule is they have 90 days to make the decision. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. And in, but in these types of cases, juvenile dependency cases, the court generally sticks to the um, sticks to the timeline. You get a decision on whether you or um, are going to prevail in the, in the appeal or whether the court is going to find that the trial court did everything right. We're in the middle of a case where we did the adjudication hearing, the jurisdictional hearing and the dispositional hearing, and we represented the mother. Another private attorney represented the father, or at least one of the fathers, and the court ruled against us and ordered that no family reunification services be given and that a 366.26 hearing be set. And it was set, I think, sometime in the first part of December 2018 um, for uh, to terminate basically the parental rights and to allow <clears throat> the caretaker to adopt the child. Um, generally, the caretakers are foster parents who are strangers to the family. In this particular case, uh, the caretakers are 
related. However, the caretakers um, don't get along with the parents. So it's almost worse than having a stranger adopt the child or try to adopt the child um, because you have someone in this particular case where the relatives uh, don't like the parents at all. A lot of family strife, a lot of issues are coming up or it came up that, uh, you know, predated the juvenile dependency case, you know, that family stuff. And uh, so we're hoping that uh, we're going to prevail on the writ and get the trial court overturned on the jurisdictional and or dispositional issues, or that we're going to get the Court of Appeals to order the trial court to give us family reunification services to try to reunite with the child in the future. Interesting thing, we just received a letter from the Court of Appeals this past week stating that it, on its own motion, it was staying or stopping the December 366.26 hearing until the case is resolved on the appellate level. Two ways to look at this. I was looking at it the most optimistic way, and that seemed to signal to me that the court was taking our brief, you know, seriously, and that perhaps we brought up some very good issues that the court wanted to explore and look at carefully before allowing the trial court to go forward with the termination of the parental rights. So things are looking up. In that particular case, um, one of the expert attorneys in my office, attorney Stephanie Davis, uh, did that brief, and she did a great job. And the other private attorney on the case was a gentleman by the name of Arthur Lasalento, Art Lasalento, and he's out of Orange County, I think in Fullerton. He represented the dad at the trial court level, um, and he also did the brief, and he wrote an excellent brief as well. So we're hoping to get some uh, traction on that appeal, and uh, we'll keep you posted in the near future. But those are the things that you have to do if your family reunification services are terminated or if family reunification services are not given to you. Okay, at this time, we're going to take a call. The first call is from area code 661, ending in 90. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vince Davis. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? Good morning. Okay, uh, maybe they were just calling in to listen. I'll go to another call. We're going to take a call from area code 562, ending in 17. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. David. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? I have a story to tell. Good morning, uh, Vincent. Um, Good morning. I've been listening to you. I've been listening to you this morning, and um, what you um, mentioned about. Um, you know the um, rights to have you to have family reunification. In, in my case, uh, when it started out there, um, we were in the system because of my economic disaster, and um, and the kids were temporarily put into a, a foster home, and <clears throat> it was a, mainly a group a group group home. But through the course of all the hearing and, and it was it was hard because at first you started out with public defenders 
and um, and with all due respect to public defenders, they really just like to make deals, and they're a third party, and they work for the courts anyway. They don't really work for you, the client, because you're not paying them, and um, they just um, they always try to settle for something less. But I know, in, in my particular case, is that with my we had three children. My wife and I had three children that were taken into the system. Our daughter was uh, never given me any um, any reunification at all. I mean, there's never the talk of it. Um, when they were taken abruptly from our home, and of course I blew it without the um, the permit that you have to do before you go into a home, and um, that was never presented. And then, of course, social service got the police involved, and when the police get involved, it gets even worse. It's a worse nightmare to go through. And um, so my daughter um, never once was ever encouraged, never was once um, uh, allowed to meet with the father. I think it was left up to her to control the situation. And, of course, the social worker in the system orchestrates her own agenda, and it was a series of social workers. There was about three or four of them through the four-year period, and eventually um, – they were able to convince our daughter um, that the best system would be to stay with some people that she only been with for seven months and get adopted by perfect strangers. I mean, they don't even have the same culture. They don't have the same way of life. Um, they had money. And the sad part about everything that drives everything, this whole system is all money. Everything is money. And uh, whether you're social services or wherever you're at, it's all the money that drives things. And so what was happening is that um, on numerous occasions, I would ask, uh, could I have a chance to meet with my daughter with a group of people around, a group of professionals? Can we have a chance to try to bring our family back together? Because we had a normal, healthy family. We had, uh, you know, our children loved our parents. We loved our children, doing well in school, well kept and everything. But um, my, my problem, besides economic dis- disaster, is that, both my parents died, and I had all their belongings in my house, and that was the excuse that they used to uh, say that um, I was not a fit parent because I had too many belongings in my house, and uh, without the money to put them in storage, I had no choice. So um, anyway, it was it's been an uphill battle. We of the three children, we got the two boys back, but our daughter is going for a final review in um, December. I don't think she's going to change. The other thing you mentioned about family members and, and so forth, uh, we thought that my wife's family members would be really supportive of trying to bring the family back together. Instead, mm-hmm. they just did the opposite. They made up stories. It was it's a phenomenal mess, um, so complicated. But there was, there was no family reunification to speak of, uh, even with our son to the end. It was kind of like... Well, he started to reach age, he's going to speak up, he's going to spill the beans and tell social services how bad they are. They didn't want to let him get on the trial. And it's like you go through all these hearings, three-month hearing, six-month hearing, 12-month hearing, and they just keep it postponed. We never had a 12-month hearing. We never had a six-month. They got dumped onto the 19, 18-month hearing. It's like I never, I never once ever had a trial through the whole process. And the only thing we did have was with our daughter, and she was trying to be adopted by uh, um, her aunt, who I thought would be a good choice, but it turned out to be that it was a very bad choice, and that she not only wanted she wanted to adopt her, 
we didn't want to have our daughter adopt there. And so what's done now to my wife is that she has just become very um, disillusional. She's been becoming very, very, it's very sad. It's like every day now um, since it's things we think we thought things were going to get better, but they haven't. And uh, she's just so discouraged um, um, by what's happening, but losing our, losing our daughter. And so I thought I'd share with the listeners that uh, I guess the key is to get an attorney on board early in the program, somebody like Vince Davis, who's well-known attorney. He does care about children. He does uh, care about families. Um, he goes the extra miles. As you know, he's doing this radio show. Um, you know, everybody's free listening on it. He'll meet with you. He'll talk with you. Um, he has a great law firm, um, and uh, he has a great bunch of attorneys. I mean, you mentioned Art and, and Stacy. I've worked with both those individuals. Stacy is, is, is excellent at writing appeals and, and doing things about that. She's very meticulous. Art, I've seen him engaged in trial. He is just, he swings. He knows how to, to get to the point. Uh, he's very dedicated stuff. And with Vincent there, between those three, those are a perfect uh, team there. Um, and so I'm glad you mentioned that today, Vincent. But um, I don't know... I guess our next stage, of course, is next week. We're supposed to file the lawsuit against social services, the whole new fall grain. We know it's going to take time and everything, but they wrongfully, you know, my rights, my civil rights have been violated. Uh, my family has been torn apart. My family is not the same. Um, you know, it, it's really sad. You know, you, you have a family that has a problem. We're economically out of money. We're economically hard to get a job we're economically losing our home and everything else and they instead of sitting there trying to help you they're going to try to find things and create stories and make your life a living uh nightmare and so uh, anyway in closing here uh, because i know there's other listeners who like to talk and so forth is uh is uh make sure you get a good attorney that represents you what you want to have done and that will fight for you and uh and uh, I feel so bad for all the families going through what you're going through. I know it all. I've heard it all. I've spent four years in that courtroom down in Orange, and I've seen all the sadness and the stories and stuff. And all you people are just really good, good people, loving hearts who just made maybe a mistake or two in life. But the goal should be reunification. It should be make the family well again, help the family get better instead of destroy the family. In my case, I've been destroyed. It's sad, but thank you for the time, Vincent. I have one question to ask you. <clears throat> Since you've been through this process, <clears throat> what's the one piece of advice you would give the listeners who are in the middle of the process or are about to start this process in CPS court? Well, my advice would be is, number one, you've got to have a decent attorney. I think I see a lot of the cases where people, this isn't, uh, when you go to court, it, it's like, as they say, would you operate on your heart? Would you replace your heart yourself? No, you go to a heart surgeon. Well, you need to do the same thing with the attorney. I know it's money, and that's the number one thing that seems to hurt a lot of people. But if you get a good attorney, he'll work with you. He'll make payment plans. He'll, 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 he'll work with you. And so my advice is number one is get an attorney and if you're in the middle of it and you've had a public defender it's not too late but lay the framework down make sure your rights are being protected 
make sure you have, you know, your, your your children be able to speak. If you let the children speak in court, they'll destroy the judges. They'll destroy the um, the uh, opposing uh, counsel. Opposing counsel is so horrible. I couldn't believe it in the end. We spent another nine months to finish something up that should have been done back in March, and it took to October to finally get it finalized. But they were just trying to nickel and dime you, telling you, okay, we give in. We'll give you now. You can see your kids three days ago. I mean, it was just, it was just ridiculous how opposing counsel uh, is allowed to destroy um, a family. They, they don't have any – they want to win. They have an ego problem. The judge is the same thing. The judge is just – they're all in cahoots. I mean, they're all third parties. They're all paid by social services. So if that helps, maybe they can get a good attorney. Well, thank you for your call, and thank you for for listening, and uh, keep listening to the show. I will. Thank you, Vincent. Before we take the next call, I wanted to mention something that came to my mind while that caller was telling us his story. Um, He mentioned that his case, I believe, was in Orange County. So a lot of people think when I talk to them that different laws sometimes apply depending on where you live. And that's not necessarily true. Well, it's not true, but there is a little bit of truth into it. So let me explain. CPS courts are governed by the California Constitution and the United States Constitution. However, there are specific laws in California that cover these types of cases. And these laws are found in the Welfare and Institutions Code in the California Rules of Court, which apply to all cases. And uh, they apply to, there are local rules for each particular county. So if you want to know, um, you know, what rules govern your case, you want to also look at the local rules, and you can just Google it. For example, you could Google local rules for juvenile court, Los Angeles County, or local rules for juvenile court for San Francisco County, or Yolo County, or Alameda County, or San Diego County or Imperial County. So you can find those local rules. You can also Google Google the California Rules of Court for Juvenile Court. There are many rules that govern juvenile court practice and procedure, and sometimes substantive law as well, where the statute hasn't maybe been clear. Uh, The California Rules of Court expound on that statute and try to give you a better explanation of what is required. If you read the, the statute itself and, the, and these rules, you will find out what needs to happen in juvenile court. If you go on my YouTube, um, I try to explain some of these in short videos. Uh, so just go to youtube.com and then search Vincent Davis. And you'll come up with a bunch of little short videos that will try to help explain some of these things generically. 
and I have to stress that, you know, these are generic explanations. But, you know, a lot of times I go to court, and when I, when I go to court, I, I get the feeling sometimes that, you know, when cases may not always be focused on what the rule is, and, there's, you know, pe- people fall into patterns, and it's just normal. Um, it's been some time, but I, I remember doing a case in a court in Los Angeles County, and it was a dispositional hearing. And we got down to the end of the case where we were arguing about what standard of evidence applied and what the actual test was. And a very, very experienced prosecuting attorney was arguing that the standard was preponderance of evidence of a substantial risk. Now, when she said that, I thought that she knew what she was saying was incorrect, but was arguing anyway. But as the argument developed, it became clear to me that she didn't know what the law was for this particular hearing. And I think that she just fell into that particular arguing or using that standard. The real standard as a, at a juvenile dependency hearing is not preponderance of evidence. It's higher. It's clear and convincing evidence. And people ask me, well, what's the difference? A lot. So if the social worker has to prove something by a preponderance of evidence, I generally say, well, that means they need 50, more than 50%. If they prove more than 50%, that carries the burden of proof by a preponderance. But when you're at a dispositional hearing, the actual standard is clear and convincing evidence. And the social worker must prove by clear and convincing evidence a particular fact. Now, clear and convincing evidence, I, when I explain this to people, I say that's 75% or more. Now, there's a big difference between 50% and 75%. Additionally, the social worker's attorney was using the, the test of substantial risk. When the actual, de- the actual test in the statute is they have to prove by clear and convincing evidence of a substantial danger. So they have to prove that the parent is a substantial danger for the parent to lose the child for the next six months. That's a significant difference between risk and danger. And, and, and it's not danger, it's a substantial danger. You have to be a bad, bad person to be a substantial danger to a child, in my opinion. And sometimes I get the feeling that attorneys and perhaps sometimes judges use risk when they are maybe thinking about risk when they should be thinking about substantial danger. So in this particular case, we came down to arguing substantial risk by preponderance or clear and convincing evidence and substantial danger. And do you know that took a break and went to read the statute. And it, it, it was kind of flabbergasting to me because, you know, how could you, how could we not know what the standard is and what burden of proof? 
the judge, to her credit, takes a, a break, goes, looks at the statute, comes back and says, oh, Mr. Davis is correct. It's clear and convincing evidence, and it's of a, of a substantial danger. You know, and, and they have to prove something else, as I pointed out to court. Not only do they have to prove that you're a substantial danger, but they also have to prove that there are no less restrictive alternatives. If they don't prove both of those, the child has to be returned to you at the dispositional hearing. So keep that in mind uh, when you're doing these types of cases. A lot of people think, well, at the jurisdictional phase, you have to prove that you're at risk by a preponderance of evidence. And if they prove that, then you automatically lose the dispositional phase of the hearing. And that's not true at all. So let me tell you one of the tricks I use. I try to focus on proving that the person, even though the allegations are true, that the person is not a substantial danger. And there are a lot of appellate cases on this. The most famous one is a case called NRA Rocco M, R-O-C-C-O. And basically it explains to attorneys and to judges what has to be proved at the dispositional hearing. Clear and convincing evidence of a substantial danger. You could be a risk to a child. For example, if you had been testing dirty or if you had used drugs or if you had inappropriately disciplined a child. But that doesn't mean you are a substantial danger. And then on top of that, they ha- even if they prove that you're a substantial danger, they have to prove that there are no less restrictive alternatives. So here's kind of a secret that I use in some cases. I subpoena to court the person most knowledgeable in that particular county about something called family preservation services. Counties, they call it different things. But here's what family preservation is. They'll come to your house four or five times a week to check on the kids and to provide services to you in your home. So, for example, they'll provide individual counseling. They'll provide parenting. I've even heard that they provide, in some cases, they'll provide substance abuse counseling. So if they are there four to five times a week checking on your home, checking on the children, and providing you these services, the social, it's, the social worker would be, it would be very difficult for the social worker to say that there are no less restrictive alternatives. So that's a little trick. Maybe you want to talk about it with your attorney or keep it in mind when the dispositional phase of the hearing comes up. At this time, we're going to take another call. We're going to go back to 661, area code ending in 9-0. Good morning. This is Attorney Vince Davis. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? I have a story to tell. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fine. Go ahead and tell your story. Well, I have a autistic, a severely autistic son, and he has a language impairment. And I also have a 11-year-old daughter. Um, I've been dealing with CPS for the past 19 months. And my case was because I had a stalker breaking into my house and doing obscene things while me and my kids were gone. There was also even a fire started while me and my kids were asleep. The person um, picked my lock, went into my master um, bedroom with me and the kids were asleep, and set my shadow curtain on fire. I called the fire department, 
and they simply put it out. And the very first thing, when I told them, I didn't see who did it, and they saw that my children were asleep, and they immediately assumed that I'd done it. Well, I had to go into a whole array of different scenarios that was happening to my house. I had found, like, a couple of um, dirty drawings of um, just random, you know, little extreme drawings around my house. He even wrote um, nasty things on my walls and on my mirror. And the thing about it was just because I didn't have proof, it was like I was, they just went on and just said that I was schizophrenic without me even having a diagnosis or even talk to a counselor. So I wind up um, going to two different psychologists that the CPS worker referred me to. I showed the first psychologist pictures of the fire that was started on my bed, the fire that was started on my shower curtain, and the random pictures and stuff. And they were trying to accuse my son at first, and I was like, he doesn't even, he he likes to say false stuff. And I was like, there's no way possible that he even knows how to strike a lighter. And then it went from, oh, well, your daughter must be doing it. I was like, no, and they tried to assume that she probably started it because my son was getting more attention from me. And then I let them know that was not the case. When I found out my son had autism, I saw a homeschooling my daughter. So it was never a time where she felt she wasn't getting attention or anything. And it was just me and my two kids that lived in the home. And all these random stuff was just happening, and I let the lady know, hey, every time we leave, my house will be trash, or I'll find some kind of obscene note in my bedroom. And I did call the police, and truly the police was no kind of help because it was the thing where, oh, well, if you didn't see anybody or the neighbors didn't see anybody, it was just like it never happened. But it was like on a constant, constant, constant thing, every time when me and my kids leave or, like, late night, I would wake up to a big mess in my kitchen or and then it just escalated with the fires. So I did two, I did two assessments. And then I called myself when they took my kids from me. I called myself moving out south because I just didn't want to stay in the city that I was living in because I didn't want to keep moving from one side of town to another and still have this person to follow me and the things keep occurring. So once I moved down south and my kids were still in the system, I had got situated, I found the job, I had even found the house. So as soon as my court date was coming up, she told my caseworker told me that I need to come back where my case was originally started at because they were supposed to be giving um, my custody to the caretakers. I come back where I was, and when I came back, my situation just really depleted because it's been really hard for me to even find a job here. And then not only that, I still feel kind of fearful of being in the city where all the commotion has started. And then from there, the social worker has um, has been telling 
telling me that I needed to move back to where I was. And then she also even told me that I should tell the judge that I learned my lesson and just pretend that the situation didn't happen. And I'm like, for months, this man has been bothering me and my kids and doing all this, you know, weird stuff, and why should I not stick to what truly happened? And honestly, it was no lesson to that I could have learned out of someone destroying my whole household and I lost everything in in the fire. So it's been a real challenge trying to get the people to understand. I understand that I don't have any proof, but I did three assessments, and none of the assessments said that I had any kind of mental or emotional problems. And then it got to the point where I had a visit with my son, and my son needs assistance going to the restroom. And one of the workers who was supervising the other parents' visit, she bust in the bathroom where I was assisting my son, and she's like, do you supposed to be in here? I'm like, yes, he has autism. And she was like, well, I think he can go to the bathroom himself. So I didn't say anything to her. I closed the door back, and when me and my son returned to the area that we were doing our visit at, she immediately jumped in my face and was like, you don't close doors on me when I'm talking to you, and I'm your social worker supervisor. And it was just like a big a big unnecessary argument. And I didn't respond to her negativity. I just let her know whatever you need to say to me, please say it to my social worker. So later on that evening when the social worker was taking me back to the Greyhound bus, she was telling me what the lady did was wrong and it was inappropriate because she was, you know, kind of loud around my kids and the other kids and the other parents. And she gave me the information to do a, um, to do a grievance. Okay, I called and I let the people know what happened. But the weird thing about it was she had a totally different story than what actually happened. So it was like kind of my word against hers, and then the social worker, my social worker who was supervising my visit, just totally backpedaled. So now they had started trying to make me go to um, the place where my kids are to do my visits. They wanted me to ride a Greyhound bus station at 5 o'clock in the morning. However, the city that I live in, I don't have a car. And the city that I live in, they bus systems don't start running to 650. So it was just totally impossible for me to um, visit my kids. And this has been like the fourth visit that I've missed seeing my kids ever since the altercation had happened on our first, on our third visit with a lady busting in in the bathroom on my son. And I was telling my social worker, you know, that wasn't fair because, you know, my son has autism. It seemed like you should have at least spoke up for me and not said, just sat there and said nothing. And then she goes into trying to yell and fuss at me, well, if you wouldn't have had all that stuff going on at your house. And I'm like, excuse me? I was like, ma'am, I didn't. I never dated anyone since I've been in the city that I was living in. Because when I found out my son had autism, that, that was so new to me. So I was trying to gather all the information 
and try to do all the try to get all the information I can about autism and um go to the different services and meet people on how can uh, me and my daughter, you know, help my son. And it was just kind of baffling to me that I have a a disabled child and I'm looking at that I'm the monster or something. And it's all because some random person had a crush on me and all this me and my kid's life has changed because of somebody else's emotional or whatever his case may be, but it was nothing on my part that I did wrong. It was like I, I just didn't understand how could I be calling for help, and it just turns against me. And my case has been going on for, you know, way too long, and I've done I've done three assessments, and I even did the parenting classes that they had asked me but since I had to move back from down south, I've been trying to regroup and finding a job and finding housing. But the thing about it, she's telling me, well, if you just found housing, we'll, uh, we'll help you with the deposit. Okay, that's fine. However, how am I going to maintain the housing if I don't have a job? And then most places, they want to see at least three to six months of a strong work history. So it was just like I was set up down south pretty good. I had a I was actually working two jobs when I went down south and it's like now the social worker that I have, she's kinda trying to force me into staying in the county where I don't I personally do not feel that it'll be safe for me and my small family because it's just me and my two kids. What county do you live in now? Well, right now I'm in Fresno County. And when you said you were down south, where were you? I was in um, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And that's where you prefer to be? Um, kind, yeah, kind of. Well, to be truthful, I'd rather be anywhere besides Kern County. That's where my um, case has started in Kern County. Okay, but you're living in Fresno County right now. Yes, my brother lives here because I um, because the worker told me that I had to come back to California to um, to get my kids out of the system. That was the false pretense that she gave me because. Um, I had finished everything, and I had let her know that I was um, that I had got a house, and she had me under the false pretense, like, okay, if I show up for just come to court, and I show my uh, check stubs and verify that I had um, housing in Alabama, that she'll let me have, you know, that my kids will come back home with me. That was so not the case when I went to court. It was a totally different scenario because half of, half the time where my case had started, I uh, went down south because I was like, I didn't know if this person um, set the fires so me and my kids could be separated so he could harm me because I never did. I, I just didn't understand why would somebody do the things they were doing to me and my family. It was just, and I explained to them, I was like, you know, I really don't feel safe here. 
I didn't have any. My my brother was living in Kern County with me, but he wound up getting a better job, and he moved to Fresno. So I had no kind of support, no friends or anything in Kern County. And then I asked her about having my case transferred from Kern County to Fresno, and she was just like, oh, your son is set up with a bunch of services here. He's getting his knees met with a caretaker, and Joy, she likes where she is. And I was like, okay, I understand that, but are we working on getting the kids back with me? And if I don't feel safe there, why would I? Why are you all forcing me to be somewhere where I don't feel safe? Because I was you know, reminding her. I'm sorry. Do you have? Did the social worker make you move from Alabama back here? Was that in writing? Did she email you that? No, she did not. So this was all on the phone. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry for interrupting. Keep going. Oh, sorry. But, yeah, I had, um, I was working, I had two jobs. I was working at um, a hotel at night where I was on my way to being the supervisor of the department that I was in. And then also I was working nights at, for a catering company. And I had found a nice, a nice home in a nice, quiet, safe area where, you know, it was real children-friendly and stuff like that, and I explained that to her. And she told me that um, she had put in some kind of motion or something, and I did have an opportunity to speak with one of the um, DHR workers in Alabama, and she just told me that I needed to uh, do fingerprints and they were going to do a background check on me. So once I got ready to do that, the worker calls me, and she's like, look, you have court less than two weeks. You need to be out here because these people are going to keep your kids. And I'm like, really? Because the whole thing was housing and this and that and the other, and she was, like, real adamant, me coming back. So once I came back to Kern County, it was just a whole different scenario. She told me that she was going to help me with um, – with housing, with temporary housing. And I go to the um, the welfare officer who she told me to go to, and those people just told me blatantly that they, couldn't even, that they couldn't help me because I didn't have my kids. So I'm like, why would you have me to come out here and make my situation way worse than what it was? At least there when I was in Alabama, I had a job, <laughs> I had support, but... I do have I have nobody in Bakersfield, so that's what made me come to Fresno because I do have my brother and his little family here. And it's like it's just been a whole misleading situation with the social worker that I currently have now. Do you have a, um, a pen and a piece of paper? Um, no, not the, not at the moment. I'm going to give you some information. Can you grab one? Sure. Okay, I'm ready. I'm going to give you a telephone number. It's 
between the dispositional hearing and the first six-month hearing. Although I had received reports that she was doing very well in her programs. Well, I showed up at the uh, dispositional, excuse me, the first six-month hearing, and she had actually glowing reviews from the parenting instructors, the substance abuse counselor, uh, from the individual counselor. She was testing clean, never missed a test, never tested dirty. And the social worker wrote a report that said, um, you know, if the mother had housing, we could return the children to her. So just like the lady that just called in. And I thought, well, here's a situation where they're not going to return the kids because this woman doesn't have housing. Then I started thinking about it. I started doing some legal research. And I realized that the county was paying three different foster homes. I think the number was about $1,000 total to keep the kids out of the mother's custody or to house the kids because the mother didn't have a place. So I started doing some research. And now one of the things that rarely comes up in the juvenile court cases is um, the section of the Welfare and Institutions Code that deals with family reunification services. And at that time, it was in the Welfare and Institutions Code section, section 16,500, as I recall. And I think it's still defined there. So I came up with some research from California and in other jurisdictions, other states, that supported the notion that the county has to get you housing if they have your kids. They have to help you with housing. So I made a motion. I didn't have a judge who was a fiscal conservative, and he thought, it was the greatest idea. Why spend five or $6,000 to keep kids in foster care when we can give them back to the mother and spend less than 2000 you know, to get, them, get the mother and the kids an apartment? The motion was continued several times, and finally, someone very high-ranking from DCFS came to court and asked, asked me to withdraw the motion. And if they withdrew the motion, they would provide her housing. And I talked to my client, and she said, yeah, that sounds great. So they got her housing. And um, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know this was going to happen. They actually got, and I don't know if it was through their funding or through donations or what, but they fully furnished the house. The refrigerator, the place didn't have a stove, stove beds for everybody, you know, couch, love seat, you know, and a fully furnished home. And that rem- I hadn't thought of that case in a long time because that's not all- that case doesn't always come up with a person, you know, maybe homeless, and that's the only thing that is stopping them from getting back their children until this lady just called on this last call. So talk to your attorneys if housing is an issue. The departments, uh, CPSs from all over the country receive billions of dollars to provide family reunification services, 
And in my opinion, in California, um, housing is one of those services that they should give to you or offer to you if it's necessary to get your children back. So if you want to do some independent research on your own, Google Family Reunification Services in California, and if you take you to the Welfare and Institutions Code, you know, around the 16,000 sections, take a look at that, talk to your attorney about that, and you too may be able to get the county to pay for your housing so that you can get your children back. You know, in a lot of counties, L.A. doesn't do this, but uh, I I don't know if they don't do it. I haven't seen it in cases that I've been involved in. But in some counties, like in Orange County, they actually make part of the reunification plan that you have adequate housing. What I don't think they realize is is that if you don't have, you know, uh, housing, they have to provide you services to get that housing. And sometimes those services, you know, are cheaper than paying for the children to be in foster care. So so make sure that you bring that up or talk to your attorney about it. Okay, we're we're running out of time. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. And uh, we'll be on the air next week at uh, 8 a.m. Pacific Standard. But before I go, I wanted to remind everyone, if you have a question that you want to get answered, give us a call at 888 Make an appointment for a phone conference. Your first, your first initial consultation is completely free. Also, check out our website, fightchildprotectiveservices.com, and uh, there are videos there, testimonials there, that, and information uh, that will help you in your journey through the juvenile dependency court system. Also, go to YouTube and search my name at youtube.com. I have a, no- a number of videos, and we keep adding adding videos to that YouTube channel that hopefully will be uh, an assist. And you can get my book. You can go to amazon.com, search my name. I wrote a book, uh, How to Fight the Secret, How to Fight Child Protective Services and Win. And if you don't want to do that, just call my office and tell them you heard on the radio that I made an offer to mail out the book to you for free. The book is a general overview, but it gives you insight and information that you should know if you're in a juvenile court battle fighting for your children. This is probably going to be the most important legal battle that you've ever been in, so it's important to educate yourself. That book I wrote, it's only about 77 parents, not for lawyers. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on the radio.
Please leave your message for six six one four three one zero eight seven four. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.